Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Jenny Hechidorian, creator of Everything Good, a podcast of comedic essays out next month. And I'm thrilled to introduce this week's podcast because of the hilarity of this urban legend. So the story is usually traced back to a small town in Pennsylvania in the 1970s, where the cops brought in a suspect and hooked him up to a lie detector machine. But this machine consisted of a metal colander that had taped wires on it that went to a Xerox machine. And the colander, strainer of pasta, what have you, was placed on the suspect's head. That's it. Now, the cops had previously put the message, he's lying, in the copier. So as the cops interrogated the suspect, every time they didn't believe him, they pushed the green button. And out came, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying. And somehow the suspect believed this, and he confessed. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this They start telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. ...to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back to all of our listeners. We are so happy to have all of you great listeners out there, and recently, we've had a couple of especially great listeners. Yeah, well, Heidi and Grace have been some of our wonderful listeners who've recorded the opening stories. We call them guest storytellers because it sounds fancy. I think that's great. If you would like to be a guest storyteller, we would be so happy to have you. Um, You can reach out to us on Twitter and get in touch with us that way. Or you can call us at 512-222-3375. Yeah, that's the Just a Story hotline. We actually have had some calls recently, and we've had a few requests for the La Lorena story. Yeah, we're going to have to work on your pronunciation of that before we do an episode on it. So as soon as we get that down, folks, we are going to tackle... La Llorena. Yes, and we want to do that and some other stories from that region. That's a very specific Hispanic urban legend. Right. And we'll probably end up doing a Hispanic urban legend episode. And I think we've talked about doing episodes that are related to regions. Yeah, we've talked about maybe state by state or something like that. So if you want to help us get started on that project and you have just an irresistible local legend, we would be so excited to hear from all of you. Yeah, call and let us know about it. Or find us on Twitter at JustAStoryPod or email us at JustAStoryPod at gmail.com. So back to the story at hand. The story at hand. Yes, the magical fake lie detectors. Yes, obviously all you need to catch a dumb criminal is a bunch of tricks and some, you know, light entrapment. Of course, entrapment. Why not? You know, the funny thing about this is that these kind of lie detector legends have been around for millennia. And I find that really interesting because we think of the lie detector or the polygraph machine as sort of modern scientific hoodoo, quackery. Yeah, but this is actually a traditional motif in folklore. Uh Uh-huh. And that's that the thief is tricked into betraying himself in a supposed ordeal. Okay, a supposed ordeal. Yes, so what they would do, some wise man, whether it be like a sheik or gaucho, or Native American chief, or something like that, would take this group of suspects, and they would be... Subjected? Yeah, to a test. Okay. And so the test would be something where they would have something. Oh, well, that clears everything up. It was something that would be like a magical object. Okay. That would be able to tell truth from fiction. Okay, so they might have a something with a something that was magic. Yes, and so they would have like a tent or a a pot or something like that. Oh, all these magical things. Well, no, that's where the magic thing was. Oh, okay. And so all of these supposed thieves 
were supposed to reach in and touch the object. And by everyone going and touching the object in this dark place, they'd be able to tell the truth because they would know that the thief would not actually touch the object. Well, how could they tell if they touched the object? He would fake it. How would they tell if they touched the object or not? Well, since he would not be the one touching it, they would cover the object in something. And all of the innocent people would touch it and, let's say, have, like, sit on their hands. Okay, so they would put... Okay, now I see your something with the something. So they would take, for example, a lamp. Well, in some of these stories, you have things like a cock. What? Or a raven. Oh, birds. We're going birds. Yes. Okay. And it would be covered in soot and put in a pot. And everyone would have to reach in and touch it. I think so I've had that dish at your grandmother's. Lucky you. Uh-huh. Were you innocent? I'm never innocent. <laughs> so the thief would reach in and not touch the object. Everyone else would. All the innocent people would have soot on their hands, and the guilty party would have clean hands. And I love that we are okay with this deception, but not okay with whatever the thief has done. Like, I just think that that sh- exposes such a nerve in society. Well, it gets to truth. So it's okay to deceive people to get to the truth. Depends on who you ask. It's a very interesting question and one I'm sure we will be looking at in more detail as we continue on in this episode. Some of the other variations of the story have like a donkey whose tail is smeared with mint oil. So you have a bunch of prospective thieves going up and pulling a donkey tail? That's right. Or in a Chinese tail wears a bell covered with black ink. Or a Japanese tail wears a dust-covered statue. Or even in the Ozarks you had a puppet covered in walnut oil. It's highly specific. It's the story. I, I'm just saying. Just an observation. So in Appalachia, is it like a banjo covered with moonshine? Maybe so. But so this particular urban legend, the colander lie detector test that our episode started with, has our poor dumb criminal. It's always a dumb criminal. Right, because it's only the dumb criminal is going to fall for this shit. Well, no, in the first one, the criminal was smart. And he was like, I can just say I touched it, and I'm not going to touch it. Yeah, you're right, you're right. This one is just a hapless dupe. So you can see that as time progresses, we kind of lose respect for the criminal. Sad how society changes. So this urban legend of our, our poor hapless dumb criminal who gets hooked up to a colander, which I'm not sure why there's a colander in the police department. How else would they make mac and cheese? Yeah, like who's cooking like spaghetti at work? Someone called their wife and had them run down a colander. I'm telling you, this is exactly what happened. <laughs> they place that on his hair. They hook it up to the copy machine. And they trick him into telling the truth. And that's because at the moment that he is to, you know, sort of spit out the whopper, like give that false testimony, the copier is set to spit out... Something that says, like, lying in, like, I'm sure Comic Sans font on <laughs> a blank piece of paper. It's always Comic Sans. So this story's actually been around since the 1960s. This does not surprise me. It sounds so 1960s to me. It was first seen in print in June 22nd, 1977, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and attributed the tale to a small police department in the country. Okay, that sounds harmless enough. And in the story, they cited Judge Garb as the judge that saw the case. And later on, the story was retold in the News of the Weird uh, book and articles. That was in 1989. And it put a specific place in Radnor, Pennsylvania. So did they like reverse engineer that town from finding the judge's name? Or was it just a random designation? Or was it a true story? I mean, like, what's the deal? Well, supposedly the writer, Chuck Shepard, said that he had a news clipping saying that it was in Radnor, Pennsylvania. But, you know, he couldn't. Show it to anybody. There's a secret news clipping. Well, obviously, if he'd been hooked up to the colander copier caper machine, it would have spit out a little thing that said, perhaps not telling probably the whole truth and or misremembering things and stuff. Yeah, and that is actually probably more likely what it was. It's just a misremembering. But he states that it has to be true because nearly every cop you talk to has in fact arrested not one, but many people he would consider stupid enough to fall for something like that. I've seen a few cops that are dumb enough to fall for something like that. I mean, come on. I've seen a few doctors who are dumb enough. Like, yeah, I've a, seen a few of those, too. You know, like, it's just such a... Okay. All right. In and, any given population, you're going to have your dummies. Whatever. 
And so the text, like the actual writing of the story that's kind of become the internet meme, what's emailed around mm-hmm. and passed around and your friend posts on Facebook or whatever, is like the direct text from that News of the Weird story in, from 1989. So one of our favorite folklorists. Jan? Jan. Jan! Sorry, no Freud. We'll get there, guys, I'm sure, at some point. But he wanted to try to figure out if this is a true story. Okay, and I bet I bet Jan got to the bottom of it. He actually did. So he sent a letter okay. on paper. Crazy talk. Was it, it in Comic Sans? It was 1990. So probably. And he sent it to the Radnor Police Department. And they replied, The fake lie detector incident referred to in your letter did not happen in Radnor. We do not know how the story originated. However, over the years, we have received numerous letters inquiring about the incident. Articles have been sent to us, which appear in the Wall Street Journal, Playboy, and other publications. I guess these are like the papers that were in the break room. I don't know. Our guess is that some reporter had the story and used Radnor as the place of occurrence. Sincerely, Maurice Hennessy, Chief of Police, Radnor Township. Wow, Maurice Hennessy is a great name, first of all. Second of all, I think that that pretty much clears things up. Thanks, Jan. It's amazing what a little research and letter writing can do. But wait. There's more? There's more. You don't say. He published that. Jan published that. Jan published that. And he got a letter. From? From Judge Garb. No way! Who is a real person. I thought that sounded like such a pseudonym. Like robes, like garb, like... Oh, He said that he presided over this case, and the sequence of events occurred pretty much as stated. He said, You're shitting me. I'm sorry. And I quote, I can confirm the veracity of the colander polygraph. The matter came before me in court on a motion to suppress the confession. Did he suppress the confession? Yes. (laughs) Good. Good for you, Judge Garb. But Garb says it took place in Warminster Township in Bucks County. Oh, we know about Bucks County. Go listen to Audio Dime Museum. So it's interesting that maybe, you know, did this start as a story? Did this start as a story and someone said, I'm going to do this? Or did it happen for real first and then became the twisting of it into an urban legend? I love when fact and fiction make these, like, glorious little hybrid baby things. This is just my favorite. Well, then this idea of this colander lie detector machine has been used in several like TV shows and movies like Homicide and The Wire are two important shows that had this in an episode. I think this is so fabulous. I bet it was in an episode of the Andy Griffith show as well. It should have been. Well, Barney... We're going to hook Otis up to this here lie detector. You see, it'll tell if he's telling a big old whopper or what. The thing is that lie detectors themselves, or what's referred to as a lie detector, Mm -hmm. are real. Yes, in theory. Uh, Yeah, the machine is real. The polygraph machine. Right. But it's been around for a while in several different permutations. Absolutely. But... The storied history of the lie detector machine begins with one of my favorite psychologists. Freud. False. Ah, uh, why? Because <laughs> I have lots of favorite psychologists. It's a thing I do. This man was named William Moulton Marston. That sounds familiar. It might. If you are a fan of comic books, you may have a little itch in the back of your brain. And you're like, Charles Moulton, I know who Charles Moulton is, but who is William Moulton Marston? Charles Moulton, as you might know, is the creator of Wonder Woman, but his real name was William Moulton Marston. And Marston began his career in experimental psychology after graduating from Harvard. And at this point, experimental psychology is the equivalent of being a hoodoo witch doctor. Psychology is still housed in the philosophy building. Right, because it really had not hit its stride yet. Right, this is like 1910s, we're talking. Marsden begins work under a man named Hugo Munsterberg. Hamburger? Hugo Munsterberg. He was imported from Germany, like a fine car, by William James, another one of my favorite psychologists. And William James is the founder of? The... American Society for Psychical Research. See our Ouija board episode. 
we're going to tie all this together for you folks. So he begins his career at Harvard um, after graduation under Munsterberg. And Munsterberg had a theory that you could detect whether someone was lying or not by conducting a Jungian word association test, which Jung's also one of my favorite psychologists, (laughs) and observing their little bodily tics because he believed that deception and word association would cause chemicals or electrical impulses to be sent throughout the body and the body would move in a certain way when the person was lying. And he's not all wrong. He's not all wrong. It has a lot of validity to it. You know, right now there's a lot of research in like micro expressions and things like that. You know, who wrote about micro expressions? <laughs> Paul Ekman, another one of my favorite psychologists. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of research that's gone into it. At this point, but at the point where Munsterberg was like turning the Harvard psychology program into a laboratory, which was horrifying William James, there was not a lot of research that had been done on it. And he was trying very hard to get this science admitted into courts of law. He wanted psychological testimony to be validated by being used in the judicial process. But as with all new science in the government, they said, this is a load of tosh, Mr. Munsterberg. And he said, I'm just going to keep trying and talking really loud, which is what you would expect of a man named Munsterberg. So he died during a lecture at Radcliffe, the um, women's college associated with Harvard at this point. And Marsden picked up where he left off and decided to try and find the physiological response associated with lying. And that's a very valid idea because we do have a physiological response whenever we are nervous. Right, but is nervous lying? That's a good question. Well, anyway, Marsden figures out a great way to detect nervousness and believes that that correlates with lying. So... Or deception. Now, those are different things, and that's very important. But... He uses a highly specified instrument. A sphingomometer. Or in English. (laughs) Sphingomometer. Or in layman's terms. Blood pressure cuff. And he asks the criminal or the suspect a question and then takes their blood pressure. And this is his lie detector. And so if you lie, your blood pressure goes up is the theory. Is the theory. Again, if you're a comic fan... Your ears may have perked up because the idea that there is a machine that you can put around someone and make them tell the truth or a device that you can put around someone and tell whether they're being truthful or not may or may not be a major feature in a certain comic. Yeah, Wonder Woman. Right. And what's the device? She has the lasso of truth. Right. Well, we know that Marston created Wonder Woman and that's a good story. Well, tell me this good story. Okay. So, Slick Willie, as... Bill Clinton? The original Slick Willie, was ahead of his times. Marson was a raging feminist. That sounds like a negative. No, it wasn't. He was also married to a woman named Elizabeth, who was a raging feminist. And fun fact, he was also kind of not legally, but in all other practical senses, married to a woman named Olive Byrne who was also a raging feminist, who was the niece of Margaret Sanger, the original raging feminist. And raging. Everything. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about the racism, right? But he lived with these two women and occasionally another woman named Huntley, who was also involved with them romantically. And he believed in the power of women kind of to an extreme degree. Okay, so in what way? Well, there was a lot of writing at the time, kind of like by very revolutionary female thinkers about what kind of world it would be if women were in positions of power. And so there was a lot of speculative fiction written at the time about like Amazonian societies and, you know, these islands where women were allowed to rule and it was kinder and gentler and everyone was happy and there was no fighting. So this is where he got the idea for Wonder Woman. It basically is, yeah. But Wonder Woman's not exactly the gentlest of characters. Well, uh, Marston had a little penchant for um, bondage. 
Bondage, you say? <laughs> I do say bondage. Marsden believed that loving submission was the greatest bond that two people could have. He believed that it was a perfectly normal response, and he should know, as he wrote a book called The Emotions of Normal People, which included, like, basically everyone wants bondage. Of course. So... Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But you know, it's an amazing part of it is how much bondage is in the original run of Wonder Woman. So one of my least favorite psychologists, <laughs> Wortham, really had a problem with Wonder Woman as she was kind of a little bit lesbian as her favorite expletive was suffering Sappho. This is I mean, this was like the one time that Wortham... Might have been onto something. <laughs> kind of right? Yeah. It really was like a hidden feminist agenda. It was not very hidden. No, no, no. But like, yeah, it was not plainly stated. I think there's actually... It was kind of plainly stated by Marsden himself when he said, frankly... Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who should, I believe, rule the world. See, this was like a really interesting guy. He was a psychologist. He was polyamorous. Yeah. He, and actually they, Olive and Elizabeth. Elizabeth ended up living the rest of their days together until they were like right, really old. He had two children with Olive and he had two children with Elizabeth. And Olive is who Wonder Woman's physically based on. Yes. And because he felt funny giving Olive rings because Elizabeth had rings. So he gave her two bracelets to wear. And that's where Wonder Woman's cuffs come from. Olive had a big problem admitting publicly that she was the second Mrs. Marsden. Like, she wrote for Family Circle magazine, and she would concoct these elaborate stories about going to interview Dr. Marsden at, at his home. Like, she traveled there. She would describe the travel. Not and, like walking next to the next room. Yeah, no. And she's like, the children withdrew from me as children do with strangers. It's like, I walked to the study from the bedroom. <laughs> right, no. None of that. And she, like... She never, she always told her children that their father had died in the war and that um, Marston had just adopted them. But then, like, on her deathbed, it kind of... The truth came out. Eventually, it did. So you see how much deception is going on within this home on every level <laughs> with this man who's obsessed with truth-telling. So our great feminist, bondage-loving, polyamorous, psychologist, comic book writer, inventor... Mm-hmm. Created this like proto polygraph with yes. using blood pressure measurements. Yes. And he was kind of onto something, and people got his ideas and created the polygraph test. And that's what we today call the lie detector, yes. which is really a misnomer. Now, Marsden was a ruthless self promotion machine, he believed he was destined for greatness. And he would stop at nothing to get it. Elizabeth worked as an editor for an encyclopedia. And she supported the family financially. Olive stayed home and helped rear the children. All of them had graduate level degrees. Elizabeth was within like one credit of completing her doctoral degree. I had a master's. And Olive had her master's. She was a former student of Marsden's. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I think I read this in Playboy, too. Yeah, along with a colander, copier, caber. Mm -hmm. So that allowed Marsden to cycle through a lot of careers. And so he looked for his niche, and he looked for it hard. He went to law school because of his interest in getting psychological testimony admitted into court. And that was always one of the big complaints about Munsterberg is that he knew nothing about law. And so he's like, I can fix that. So he goes and he does this. And when he's fresh out of law school and he's got his new lie detector, which he says he discovered he did not invent because it's just how it is. Gotta love this guy. He gets in touch, or he's contacted by this man named Mattingly, who was representing a suspected murderer named James Alfonso Fry. And this was in the year 1920. So what did this terrible murderer do? Well, he murdered somebody. Oh, okay. <laughs> well... He either murdered somebody or he gave a false confession to police. This man was accused of shooting a well-known doctor in the Washington, D.C. area. And the case was 
brought to prominence when this man named Dr. R.W. Brown, Robert Brown, when his family offered a $1,000 reward in 1920. He was one of the most well-known black physicians in the D.C. area. So what did they offer a reward for? Any information leading to the apprehension of a suspect in the shooting of Dr. Brown. Oh, no. Yes. When this reward goes out, a lot of press gets drummed up, and there's a man, another doctor, who claims that he saw the suspect fleeing the scene, and the suspect actually fired shots at him. The case goes cold after its initial publication, and it's not until almost a year later that a man named Fry is brought in on charges of theft. And somehow in the interrogation about the stolen jewelry, kind of maybe mentions that he might have killed Dr. Brown. Why would he do that? I don't know. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Frankly, history is too. Oh, good. As it always is. There's kind of some well-known mythology surrounding this case because it goes on to be a very important decision that is still affecting courtroom procedure today. And the myth states that Fry confessed to the crime because a friend advised him to and told him that if his alibi held up, he could still get part of the $1,000 reward once the charges were dropped after he was arrested. Like, his friend was going to get the money, and then they were going to split it, and it was going to be a thing. So this is a big scam. This friend sounds like an asshole. I think the friend is probably an asshole. So his alibi doesn't hold up, and he's like, ah, I just made the whole thing up. But, like, his witnesses kept getting scared off. And so, Mattingly, his court-appointed attorney, who may or may not have had some existing ties to Marsden before all of this took place, may... May gets in contact with Marsden and is like, this is the perfect time to try out your lie detector. And Marsden has been trying to get this thing picked up by some kind of law enforcement agency. He has talked to government agencies out the wazoo. He's contacted the Lindbergh people and tried to get in on that with a lie detector. He is all about getting this lie detector into the public eye and into the courtroom. So self-promotion machine that he is, he is like leaping tall buildings in a single bound going to give this to test. According to his calculations, this guy's on the level. So he does the lie detection with him mm-hmm. by hooking him up to a blood pressure cuff. Right. Asking him questions. Yes. And notes that his blood pressure does not change. Right. He's like, this guy's telling the truth. He really was out with this broad and not killing this guy. Correct. And he says, no one could have been more surprised than myself to find that Fry's final story of innocence was entirely truthful. His confession of the Brown murder was a lie from start to finish. And so he is very pleased with himself. And they want to take this evidence to court and they present it to the judge. And the judge is like, meh, I'm not real sure about your newfangled hoodoo, son. What science? They argue about this, and the judge, who is so small-minded, does not allow it in. And then the friend, who said, hey, bro, you should confess to this murder and we'll split this money, confesses to the crime three years after Fry is sentenced to life in prison. He's eventually exonerated and all charges are dropped. So they did not allow Marsden's lie detection machine in. No, no. They didn't. Well, okay. So the myth is very much more clean cut and pretty than the truth. Do you want the whole truth? Nothing but the truth. Okay. So help me, Wonder Woman. So Fry actually only took back his confession when Mattingly, his lawyer, mentioned that perhaps maybe it would be a good idea to not confess to the murder. Are you sure you want to falsely confess to a murder? That might not be good. This lawyer is legit. I know, right? By the time the trial rolls around, Fry suddenly remembers he has this alibi, but it doesn't check out, and so no one's around to know whether he's telling the truth or not, so we gotta call Marston. Does he show up like in his Wonder Woman outfit? God willing and the creek don't rise, sir. Now, the interesting part about this, this is where it gets tricky. They had this argument about whether or not Marsden would be able to present the results of the lie detector test in front of the jury. So the jury heard 
while not sworn testimony, an expert saying that Fry had passed the lie detector test. But they still convicted him. Well, they didn't give him death. That's good. That was the option. And interestingly, also, the judge would have allowed the results to be presented in court without Marsden's testimony. But then you wouldn't be able to understand it because this was a newfangled machine. Exactly. And Marsden did not believe that anyone should be allowed to take the results away from the expert and potentially corrupt them. She's like, no, I want to be in the limelight. Basically. Or he was after the truth and nothing but the truth. And so this case has really had a lasting impact on the American criminal system, the judicial system, too. So, like, almost 100 years later, it's still being cited? Or the decision made in this case is called the Fry Standard, and it governs the admissibility of scientific evidence. In- oh, so that seems extremely important. It is extremely important, and it all goes back to William Marsden wanting to get that stupid lie detector into court before it had been adequately peer-reviewed he brought his dissertation and handed it to the judge (laughs) like this is it's like i got an a on this i know it's like here's my science project criminals i got a gold star and a tiara that's fabulous i love this story so much and just so we're clear fry was eventually exonerated he only served three years in prison that really is true now, I don't think that hit the friend that was going to split money and all that came from, like that part's kind of hogwash, but he did actually get out of prison and went on to lead like a upstanding life. So who knows? And I think Marston may have kept him from being do it. You know, you want to do it. Fried. Yep. So what Marston used as a lie detector is not what we use today as a lie detector or the polygraph machine. What you might say, hey, polygraph machine, maybe that's related to polyamory or something. No, (laughs) it's related to the several different measurements that are taken by the machine to try to tell if someone's being deceitful. So poly meaning many and graph meaning graph. (laughs) Good job. You should be a scientist. Or a linguist. Whatever. The modern polygraph machine tests for four different things. It has heart rate. Okay. Still tests for blood pressure. Oh, look at that. Tests respiratory rate. Uh-huh. And electrodermal activity. Wait, that one. Yeah, so... What is electrodermal activity? So it's also called galvanic skin resistance, and it basically measures... The sweatiness of your hands. Are you shitting me? I'm sorry. I keep saying that. But like, this is... Okay. All right. Sure. Whatever. That means you're lying. Sweaty palms. Oh, God. It's so cliche. Do they also measure white knuckles and like mouth dryness? Yes. No. And some even measure arm and leg movement. So if you're fidgety. Oh, you'd be done, sir. I'm fidgeting right now. So if you were to be given a polygraph test, you would... It would be administered by a forensic psychophysiologist. I want that title. Well, you can have that title. How long will it take me? How many years of work and study will I have to put into this? Well, usually you have to have a bachelor's degree or Uh five years of experience. Uh Uh-huh. I've been experiencing lots of things for five years. Yeah. Okay. Ten-week course. Uh, What? And an internship where you do like 25 cases. What? And then you get to, you know, do this. What? Ten weeks? Yeah, you could do this. Like, easy. You can't even get a watermelon in ten weeks. Like, you can't plant a watermelon seed and see it grow into a watermelon in ten weeks. This is insane. Are we judging things by how long it takes for a watermelon to grow? (laughs) Honey, I've used all of my other judgment criteria. I judge a lot. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, it's really not exactly the most intense, long... So you're hardly an expert when you start doing this. But technically you are. No. Oh, because you can testify as an expert. Yes. Oh, no. They found a way around the fry standard, didn't they? Not exactly. So what you do is you sit with that one other guy. 
He's going to interview you. Or so she. you are alone in the room with this crazy hoodoo colander copier caper machine and Barney. Yes. Just you and him. Don Knotts looking right at you. <laughs> Bug-eyed. And so they'll start with the pretest. They'll ask you a few questions and kind of talk about what happened. And then they'll hook you up to the machine. And they'll start to ask questions. They ask several control questions. Okay, so what is an example of a control question? So it might be something like, have you ever stolen something before? Wouldn't you need to know the answer? Well, the thought, you're right. It's like, it's completely bullshit. The thought thought is that everyone has stolen something in the past. What if you haven't stolen something? You have. Everyone's like taking a piece of gum or something like that. What if you don't remember taking a piece of gum? What if you did it when you were six and you don't remember? Sounds like you're traumatically remembering something right now. Oh, no. I never stole anything until I was in high school. (laughs) I had a crisis of faith. All right, so they ask these control questions to get a baseline. To see mm. if you, they also ask things like, is your name Samantha? No. Okay. <laughs> is your What name, would they do if you did that? Is your name Beatrice? <laughs> yes. My needles didn't jump, folks. Boom. While asking these control questions, they'll, then they'll start dropping in the relevant questions. Say something like, did you murder Dr. Brown? If they did that, they would be terrible interrogators. It's not supposed to be an interrogation. It's supposed to be asking very basic, straightforward questions that you can get a response to. And that's where the problem lies, is that when they once they get these responses, sometimes these guys will like to say, Oh, I see you answered that question a little oddly. That's interesting, and freak the person the fuck out. Right. And guess what that does to your nervous physiological changes? I bet that would make your palms sweaty. I bet it might make your heart rate go up. I bet your blood pressure might increase. I bet you might start breathing bad. Oh, shit. Exactly. Oh, no. And then the guy takes the information and analyzes it. Like, but you've gone home and you're like back in your house in the comfort of your friends and family eating chicken soup and things like that. Well, no, it's it's both. You know, it is, like I said, like you could be in the middle of it and they could be like, that was weird. Uh huh. Freak you out. But they also will do a formal analysis after, you know, to submit. And some things I've been reading, people will like look it over and in the moment be like, hmm, you want to talk about that response a little bit more? And then it launches into a full-scale post-interview. Yes. Which can take on the form of an interrogation. No, it definitely can. And, you know, one polygraph examiner who had been doing this for years and now is kind of standing against it, so that what's happened over the years is that the media has dubbed this lie detection, and that's what's clicked. But from a scientific perspective, absolutely not. There is no such thing as lie detection... I couldn't tell you what a lie looks like. This is a guy who's been in there for 18 years, and he's saying, no, this is, this is bullshit. You can't actually tell what a lie looks like. You can tell when someone's maybe nervous, when someone's respiratory rate goes up. You can tell when someone's physiologically responding to something, but not necessarily if it's a lie or not. A lot of people say sometimes you're embarrassed when you ask a question. Sometimes you're angry when you ask a question. Sometimes you're nervous because you're strapped up to a big scary machine. Sometimes you're nervous because you're in the room with a cop who's asking you questions about a crime. There are all sorts of reasons built into the mechanisms of the test that cause nervousness inherently. Right, and the president of the American Polygraph Association, T.V. O'Malley, said that polygraph technology is held to an unfair standard. So this is the guy that is pushing it. He's uh-huh. even saying, this is like a little insane. Yeah, he compares it to something like a mammogram and other medical screening procedures, which we'll talk about that in a second, that are imperfect but valuable in detecting problems. But he does acknowledge that the value is simply in prompting people to tell the truth. He says, it's kind of like confessing to a priest. You feel a little better by getting rid of your baggage. The same thing often happens with a polygraph examination. 
Yeah, you feel a little better getting rid of your baggage until you're charged with things and sent to jail. I mean, like, that's such a strange way to phrase it. Well, and so polygraphs are also used in some uh, job interviews for federal jobs, especially like the CIA. Yeah, and it's actually becoming more popular in the private sector as well. Although there's actually a law that was passed that protects you from having to take a polygraph test in the private sector. Unless you were fired under some suspicious circumstances from a medical post. That did not happen to me. I'm just saying. It said that at the FBI, for example, there were 25% of applicants fail a polygraph exam every year. That's fantastic. And a huge study was done in 2002. And it found that if polygraphs were administered to a group of 10,000 people that included 10 spies, nearly 1,600 innocent people would fail the test and two of the spies would pass. Just two? Of 10. Just two. Yeah, and you would have 1,590 innocent people. Just two. I don't believe that. I think spies can... No, that's that's using like statistical analysis. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, there's no way. No, that's like a stat example. Oh, okay. Like, I understand. The specificity and the sensitivity of this shows that this amount would pass. This percentage of people would pass. So you're looking at your like positive predictive value. Well, that's going to get into boring stat stuff. But, you know, you're just looking at how much... So for any tests, like he compares it to like a medical test, which that... Perked my ears up. Oh, I was about to say irked you, but yeah, perked it, you, whatever. It, it perked, it irked, it perked, it lost the things. <laughs> you know, whenever you do a test like that, which would be like a screening test, you want something to catch all the people that have it. So when you do that, you're going to have to have some false positives. Right. But there's a level of false positivity. That, that invalidates it? Right, so if you have too much false positives, then it's bullshit because you're getting too many things. And so you have to play that game of having not too many false positives, but also getting everybody that has it. And these numbers do not correlate with what would be considered a good screening test because there are far too many false positives, and there are also lots of missed false negatives. Yeah. So names where you're like, oh, he passed. And oh, no, he actually killed his wife. That's never happened. Except it has. Oh. Jacob. Samantha. I think I could beat a polygraph test. How? I personally believe that I could pass a polygraph test because I'm a sociopath. Well, that's true. (laughs) But barring that, I think I could pass a polygraph test because I heard a man say that if you clench your butt. Your butt? Your butt. You mean your anal sphincter. Anal kegels. Sure. If you do your anal kegels, you can beat a lie detector. And so that has some weight. And because you do have a lot of nerve endings and blood supply to that area, and by clenching it, you can disrupt your normal physiological response. Hashtag anal kegel. Oh, good. That's what I want to be responsible for. We have already put enough out in the world. <laughs> That's not the worst of it. So I also read about this guy who was convicted on a confession that he gave after a polygraph. And he taught prisoners how to beat lie detectors. Yeah, like so to the, prove a point yeah, while yeah. he was in jail. <laughs> Definitely. So, well, there are a lot of people that are doing that, actually. There are some old school kind of ways to beat a polygraph test, like kind of James Bond spy-like things. Ooh, tell me, tell me. And so one thing is they would put a thumbtack in their shoe, and so that you would just push down on it, mm-hmm. and it would create that physiological response of nervousness or distress. And so the test would just be invalid because everything would always be at that level. Another way was putting antiperspirant on your fingers. Genius. They would not be sweaty. No sweaty palms. Okay. Those don't work. Oh, no. (laughs) Because the distress physiological response you get from stepping on a thumbtack or a small Lego. (laughs) Or a Hot Wheels car. Is different. 
than what you would get from lying or being deceitful. And the antiperspirant trick actually does the opposite. Oh, no. And the chemical actually increases... The rating? Conductivity. Oh. So it's not actually measuring the wetness. Oh. It's measuring how electricity passes through the wetness. Oh. So it actually increases conductivity on your skin. So you look like you're more nervous than you are. Exactly. So it's not effective. But you're right. There are a lot of people that are teaching others how to pass a polygraph test. Uh-huh. Because they think it's bullshit. Because guess what? It it's is. Bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it's bullshit. While it does have a greater um, accuracy level than chance. Well, that's positive. It's be- like some people say oh, it's like flipping a coin. No, it is- it's better than that. You-, you do get a little better response than that. But the amount of false positives and false negatives makes it completely invalid to be something like you, you know, to convict someone for life in prison or to for death or something. A little shy of DNA, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. A little bit. So one guy that's doing this is Douglas Williams, and he worked for the Oklahoma City Police Department doing polygraph tests for years and years in the 70s. And he calls the polygraph test an insidious Orwellian instrument of torture. I like this guy's flair. Oh, no, this guy's awesome. I like his flair. Yeah, it's, like, it's not a test. It's an intense interrogation. It's psychological warfare. And he is teaching people how to respond to these questions in a way that it will just completely mess up the polygraph test. He says, if there's a control question, you want to give it that false reading. You want to give it that thing that you think you're lying. So it says, what's your name? And so whenever you say... Samantha. You think of something terrible. So you think a bear is coming at you because you poked it. And you'll get that stress response. I would never poke a bear. I would never poke a bear. Bullshit. Or if they ask you a test like, Samantha, did you poke the bear? Uh Uh-huh. And you know you poked the bear. Uh Uh-huh. I never poke a bear. But you go, in your mind, you go to your happy place. What's your happy place? I'm not telling you. Aww. You can't go to my happy place. It's happy because I'm alone there. It's a small room with a typewriter and a coffee machine. It may or may not be Mr. Tom's library. And so you just think of, you know, laying on the beach, completely calm, and just with a little bit of practice. Who lays on the beach in their fucking happy place? God knows it's a library. Shut up. I've seen Beauty and the Beast. I know what love is. So much better than flowers. It's so much better than flowers. His flowers dying and stuff anyway. So he has actually taught a lot of people how to do this, and he's gotten in some trouble for doing that. Believe it or not, in 2012-2013, he taught two undercover cops how to do this. And he was charged with three counts of witness tampering and two counts of mail fraud. And he ended up pleading guilty to five federal charges. What? No! No, no, yes. no, he's a, he's a, he's a champion of the people. He's anti-Orwellian instruments of torture. No one wants this man to be charged with five federal counts. And then the thought police come and put him I away. mean, like, come on. So, as one could guess, there have been a few cases where people have had these false positives and false negatives come up on the polygraph test and it completely affect their judgment by the court system. Oh, you mean like the the jury's judgment? Yeah, like what their sentencing was or if they were found guilty or not. Right, because uh, polygraphs, while not admissible in court, are admissible during sentencing. Right, and there's only one state that allows it. Allows all of it. Now, there are states that have loopholes and caveats and all sorts of fun things. The only state that's just like, yeah, bring on the polygraph is New Mexico. Which is interesting, because that's where that big government facility where they like basically debunked lie detecting is... <laughs> Yeah, and in federal courts, the admissibility criteria is kind of more vague. and The admissibility criteria is vague all over the place. Now, what's practiced may be well established, but there is no hard and fast rule that covers everything. All of that is very vague. Yeah, but there are some famous cases like Aldris Amos, who is a CIA double agent uh-huh. who passed two polygraph tests as he was passing on secrets 
oh, that was nice. I liked what you did there. That was like yellow journalism level yes. like work. I love it. William Randolph Hearst is high fiving the shit out of you right now. Rosebud. Shut up. No, don't <laughs> do that. And one case that I heard about that I thought was particularly interesting involved a kid named Jeffrey Deskovic. And this was in Peekskill, New York in 1989. There was a young girl, a 15-year-old named Angela Correa, and she went missing on her way to school. And she was found two days later in the woods, and she had been strangled and beaten and sexually assaulted, and she had died. So this is now a murder case. And so police spot this young man named Jeffrey, and he seems overly emotional at her funeral. As in, he is openly expressing grief, which seems odd. Why would you cry at a funeral? I don't know. But I guarantee you, if he'd been sitting in a corner looking stoic, they would have been like, it seemed odd that he was not expressing any emotion. Definitely a sociopath. But he was crying, and they thought that was really strange, and then they found out that he'd been absent from school during the time that she went missing. Oh, no. And they're like, well, that's as good as done. This guy cried. He skipped class. Obviously, we need to sentence him to life in prison. So what happened? They decided that they needed to question him. Did they use a polygraph? On the eighth time, they questioned him. Hmm. He's 17, by the way. He's a minor. And so when they did actually use the polygraph, which was in January of the following year, what do you think the odds are that he had legal representation or a parent or guardian present at the time that the polygraph exam was administered? I'm going to guess no. No, he did not. And they gave him the polygraph exam. They told him he failed it. They proceeded to interrogate him for six hours. And let me guess, after torturing, literally psychologically torturing this kid, he confessed. Wouldn't you know? A bit of a snag. The investigation had been going really well. I mean, he cried. He skipped class. He confessed after being beaten down by trained professionals after six hours. They had him. But there was a problem. Science. Yeah. Real science. Unfortunate science side effects of this not being true, was the fact that the semen collected from Miss Correa's remains did not match any part of any kind of DNA that belonged to Mr. Deskovic. So they were like, ah, she just had sex with somebody else beforehand. On her way to school. Oh, yeah. Obviously. Because we love to do that to victims in this country. We, we really do like to... You know, assume that all 15-year-old girls on their way to school are promiscuous. So they say, well, obviously she had just had a romantic tryst. And then on her way out of wherever she was having this tryst, she happened across this young, emotional, truant man. And he, smelling her pheromones from her recent sexual encounter, lost his mind and murdered her. Oh, yeah, that sounds legitimate. Right. But a jury bought it. A jury of whose peers. Right, exactly. And so he was sentenced to 15 years to life. And eventually, in 2006, new testing became available for DNA evidence. And they ran the more advanced test and ran the sample through CODIS, which is a database. And when they did that, they found that the DNA matched that of a convicted murderer who was currently serving time. And his name was Stephen Cunningham. Science wins again. Science wins again. Real science. Real science. So in 2006, Deskovic was exonerated and freed from prison. So that's our case of a false positive. Correct. So they say he failed the polygraph test, but it was bullshit. He had nothing to do with this case, but they were able to use that evidence and throw the other evidence aside and convict him. Correct. Okay, do we have a case of a false negative? So somebody that passed the test but actually did do it? One would think if you're like a low-level offender and you don't have much conscience about what you've done and you're like, well, I was justified or whatever, you might be able to like not exhibit any nervousness when you're denying it because you feel you're morally justified and things like that. Well, but actually, hmm. people that have a really strong moral code are more likely to fail a polygraph test because they, they have feel guiltier about lying. Guilt. Yes, yes. So they will have false positives all the time if they're like very religious or have a very strongly held 
moral beliefs. So you screen an Eagle Scout and his ass is grass, you're telling me. Yes. Okay. So taking that into account, are you familiar with an individual named Gary Leon Ridgway? Yeah, I think I've heard you talking about one of your killer people. Murdery murder shit. Oh my God, don't be so dismissive. This is a very interesting case, sir. Well, tell me about it. Okay. So Gary Leon Ridgway was eventually discovered to be the Green River Killer. Okay, I know the Blitz and Chopper song. Okay, that's an amazing song. It is. And it's so much better than he deserves. Pause. Go listen to it. Blitz and Trapper. Amazing band. Anyway, he pled guilty to 48 counts of murder. I believe he holds the American record for the most prolific serial killer. Good job. But I mean, as far as convictions, nobody knows the actual count. It's probably around 90. So we got him on half. Oh, good. We're gonna call that a win. Yay, justice. But he was charged with 48 counts of aggravated first-degree murder. And he was real fond. He usually strangled his victims. Um, They were usually either sex workers or runaways, hitchhikers, or exotic dancers. A very high-risk population group. Then he would distribute their bodies along... The Green River. The Green River, Uh, right? That's how you get that clever moniker. If you're going to be a famous serial killer, you have to have a moniker. The media will give you one if you do not select one for yourself. But he was active from 1982 to 1984. Now, interestingly, he was picked up for a soliciting charge... In 1987. And they were like, nah, he's kind of shifty. I don't know about this guy. They're like, yeah, go get the colander. Hook him up. So they decide that they're going to give this guy a polygraph test because it's known that this man is killing sex workers. And this guy is picked up for, you know, looking for sex workers. So they're like, this is, yeah, maybe we should just ask him a few questions. They hook Gary up to the old polygraph. And old shifty Gary. Passes. Passes directly ask about murdering these specific women whom he has murdered and he passes but before he gets out he gives a dna sample which is very lucky now in 2001 they finally tested some dna from the victims and they found the match was it old gary it was old shifty gary they found three of the victims could be directly tied to Ridgeway using DNA. At which point he started working with someone from the Behavioral Analysis Unit, Division of the FBI, and it was a female interrogator or a female analyst. And um, she was able to get written confessions on 48 murders and body locations, which is incredible. Right, didn't they drive him out there? Oh, yeah. And he, I feel like you showed me this video. Like, yeah. Him, like, pointing... To where he thinks he threw the bodies. Oh, he could remember. It's it's not where he thinks, and like he knew like which one was where, and like. But interestingly, he was married, and he had like two children, and was like a very passable member of society. Like this is not some guy. Well, and they got him to confess on kind of a plea. Kind of. Like he got he got life instead of the death penalty. Which I was reading in an article you sent me that it was interesting because. It's now can be used as precedent to basically take the death penalty off of the table in Washington because if there's a precedent that this guy killed 48 people and can't get the death penalty, then why would someone that killed 10 people get the death penalty? Oh, I love that kind of like semantic, logistical, like very rhetorical argument. Oh, I just get it, lawyers. So Ridgeway was... Eventually, obviously, sentenced to forever in jail, 48 separate life sentences. So there's no chance he's ever getting out. And when he was questioned about how he passed that polygraph test, which to me, all I can think about is the end of Catch Me If You Can, when he's like, how'd you pass the bar in Louisiana? Gary, how'd you pass that polygraph exam? He's like, I don't know. I just I just relaxed and like whatever came out just came out. And I, he went to his happy place. He went to his happy place. Which was probably strangling the women. Oh, yeah. I would not want to go to Gary Ridgway's happy place. No. (laughs) When 
officers and experts were questioned. They were like, he's just a very unique individual. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was able to do it. And I'm like, or he was a sociopath who had absolutely no physiological responses to lying because it didn't make him anxious. Or he's unique. Whatever. He's a special snowflake. That's a better story. But yeah, so Gary Ridgway passed the lie detector exam. So obviously it works. Well, you know, so it's without a doubt that the polygraph machine is really not a lie detector. That is completely a misnomer. And even asking people whose job it is to push this will tell you that. You know, they'll still say it's very valuable evidence and we shouldn't use it. Uh, but they, a lot of times they like to say it shows deception. Lying and deception are different things. Well, yes, I agree. But I love to parse semantics. Well, so you can have deceptive behavior. It's like animals can have deceptive behavior. And that's an evolutionary advantage. Deceptive traits or behaviors can include things like eye spots to pretend to be an owl instead of a moth or camouflage to blend into your environment. Right. And so like a lie, which is a different thing, implies that you know what you're doing. You're aware that you're saying something that is not truthful. You have an agenda. Yeah. Richard Byrne. It talks about how higher apes have this kind of conscious deception. And so one example he cites is chimps. And so they'll be walking along doing their chimp thing. Chimp, 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 chimp. And they will, you know, kind of like Planet of the Apes is what I imagine. (laughs) And Is that your happy place? Yes. And they notice, like one might notice something that looks tasty to eat, but he'll ignore it. And they'll keep just moving along. Still chimping, chimping, chimping. So they can come back later and he can eat it without any sharing with anybody else. Okay, I've been known to exhibit that behavior as well. Yeah, I ate your ice cream. I know, you always eat my ice cream. And so, interestingly enough, other chimps in their group can also notice this behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. And kind of be little sneaky peats. No. And go and like hide behind a tree and wait for this chimp to come back and watch. This is like chimp to catch a predator. It's chimp entrapment. But it shows that they're picking up on it. They're picking up on this behavior. They can see that the other chimp is lying, is doing something that is a conscious action. They being shifty. And this is just such a higher order of interaction. It's just really interesting. Lying is kind of like the tango. Oh, really? Yes, really. It takes two to make a lie. Because you have to anticipate what the person expects you to say. Like You have to know what that like response is to what the truth would be. Right. So let's say, for example... Let's pretend I have you strapped into the polygraph. Hold on, I'm going to get the colander. So now that you're wearing your colander on your head. I usually do. I know. It's a good look on you. Your hair sticks through the holes. It's really amusing. Did you eat my ice cream? No. Jacob, you're lying. No. I know you ate my ice cream. Why, when I'm holding this empty carton of ice cream, would you tell me that you are not the person who ate it? Because I know you would physically destroy me. Right. So the reason that you're lying is not because you don't want to have eaten the ice cream. It's because you don't want to incur my wrath. Right. I can guess that you will be extremely angry with me if I tell you the truth. So I do not. Right. And so it's an interaction. It's a social interaction. Right. So one person really can't lie. You cannot lie in a vacuum. Right. If you lie in space... No one hears you lie? I don't know. (laughs) Because of this, we started, as human beings, we started talking. Very soon thereafter, we started lying, which is amazing. I believe that. And because of the sensitivity that one has to have in order to anticipate responses to truth and to effectively exhibit deceptive behavior... The invention of lying facilitated more effective communication in primitive societies. 
which in turn made the societies thrive because of the group understanding. It's all a lie. No, no, it's good to lie. It's good to lie? Yeah. Wait. It's good to lie. It makes you evolve. I don't think this is a good lesson. (laughs) It's not good to lie. It is good to understand how other people feel. Lying fosters empathy. No, I think that is a good idea. So lying fosters empathy, which is sort of the opposite of sociopathy. And I think it's interesting that we're so charmed by the machine that can find the lie. Because we as humans are so much better at detecting truth than we are in detecting lies. Really? It's true. There was a study conducted in the UK by a Dr. Vrish. He put samples of communication in front of participants and they were asked to tell whether the subject on screen was lying or telling the truth. And in his study, he found that people could detect lies about 44% of the time. Okay, it's like less than half. Less Less than than half. Less than chance. Less than chance. Now, people could detect truth 67% of the time, which I find very interesting. It's like our brains are programmed to know or to hope that the person we're dealing with is being truthful. And people only believe the lies because they want to. So they have no investment in what's being told to them. Why would they question it? So need a machine to help us detect lies but do we have it yet no i think that's just a story step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus